From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. You don't just want to network. You want to actually know people, care about people, understand who they are, and be a great friend, partner, whatever it is, because that's what really matters at the end of the day is that human relationship. Hi, folks. Justin Schreiber here. My guest today is Elisa Steele, former CMO of Yahoo and Skype and former CEO of Jive and Namely. Elisa has piloted some great tech companies over the past several decades. In the process, she's become recognized as one of the authorities in both B2B and B2C marketing. One of the best moves Elisa made as a marketer was to delay her marketing career so that she could carry a bag. On today's show, she'll talk about how she maxed out AT&T's comp plan as a rookie, what it took to earn her seat in the C-suite, and why the common denominator across all these experiences is people. Let's jump into the conversation. Alisa, welcome to the podcast. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Thank you, Justin. All right. Well, we have some great things to talk about today. Of course, though, I have to start by pointing out the fact that you have a soft spot in your heart for tuna fish, of all things. <laughs> Please give us the backstory on that one. Okay, well, that's really funny that you picked that up. I think I mentioned that to you when we were talking about, you know, where did I grow up and how did I, um, you know, kind of live my childhood? And I have two siblings, so three kids, mom and dad, so a unit of five. And of course, we had a dog named Christy. And we traveled all over New England because my dad had a role at a big company. And every like 18, 24 months, he got relocated. And so that meant wherever we were going to school, whatever neighborhood friends we made, whatever kind of connections we had, we'd pick up and leave. And I think what you're referring to is I told you about a time because I remember these times of uprooting and moving so quickly. And as a kid, you know, you're resilient. We say that now about our kids, but it is jarring. And you're wondering what's in store for you. And you don't know if you're going to make new friends and you have confidence that, you know, self-confidence that you're thinking about. And what did happen as a positive of that is not only did you learn how to be flexible, but my family was really close. I mean, the one thing that happened every time we moved is we moved with each other and we had each other. And I do have a memory of one year that we moved. I must have been in fourth grade. I was in three fourth grades one year, and this is the second fourth grade of that year. And, um, you know, feeling really out of sorts and it's New Year's Eve. There's a massive snowstorm. You can't go out in the car. We don't have any friends. We don't know our neighbors. There's no party to go to, no sleepover. And, um, my parents were kind of foraging in the closet, in the pantry of what the heck we were going to have for dinner. And they popped open two cans of tuna fish and, we actually, you know, played Monopoly all night long and laughed our butts off and had a good time. And, you know, it does make me 
you know, feel an affinity to tuna fish because to me, that's like family getting together and not really caring that you're not at a fancy restaurant or you're not at a big party, but you're together. And that's the only thing that matters. There's a, there's a nostalgia wrapped up in that. You know, as you were telling that story, I'm going to date myself now. Uh, Neil Sedaka was one of the great songwriters back in the 60s, early 70s. He started off writing jingles from a marketing perspective, but ended up becoming a songwriter. And he wrote a song called I Miss the Hungry Years. Ah. And I remember listening to that song as a kid thinking to myself, how could somebody miss the hungry years? Yeah. But as you get older and you have experiences and you, you, you're exposed to so many things, it's those moments that are simple that are related to sharing time with people that you love that have all the meaning in the world. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, I remember my parents didn't have a lot and, you know, they were struggling to keep up and motivated to obviously provide for their family. And I remember days hearing my parents in the other room talking about, you know, the tomatoes are too expensive at the store this week. Let's skip it because we have to balance the checking account. And now I, you know, I understand the headline to that song because um, it brings people together when they have things they need to overcome. All right. I wanted to highlight a great challenge that you made on LinkedIn. This was, this was a few years back, but you said, let today be the day that you open a door for a working woman in your world. And as, as you and I have gotten to know each other, I can't help but think that the seeds for that challenge were actually planted way back when you were in business school. Maybe let's start in business school and talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, let today be the day to help a woman in your world. I wish I could post that and get action on that every day um, because there's so much that we can be doing and that we could affect change. And um, that particular post, I think, had to do with, you know, a, a group I was sponsoring and what we were trying to do to affect change. But I have found throughout my career, you know, when someone reaches out and gives me and gave me an opportunity, one that maybe wasn't I didn't think was reachable for me or one that was invisible to me, it made an entire difference in my life. And so I think the more that we can reach out and help others get those opportunities, the more we literally change people's lives, opportunity and means. And when I went to business school and I went to, to get my master's in business right after I graduated um, so as a young kid, and um, I was in a master's program with, um, I guess you would call peers, but they weren't my peers. They were in my classroom with me. But, you know, it was 1988, and there weren't a lot of females getting their MBAs, number one. And there weren't a lot of people, either gender, any gender, in the class who were less than, say, 40 years old, and I was 21 at the time. And so I looked at all these students and saw them as, you know, people who knew more than me, who had more experience, who were smarter, who had all the answers to all the tough questions. Um, and in one class, it was organizational behavior, um, one of my favorite classes, um, and still one of my favorite topics. We got an assignment and I got put in a group. Um, and, you know, the skills to work in a group are really different than when you go through anything um, except for team sports. But in school, you're like get tested and it's kind of your own grade kind of thing. And you go to grad school and all of a sudden it's like you're relying on all these other people. And I didn't have those skills yet. And I certainly didn't have the confidence 
that I would lead a group. So I got put in a group with um, three other people. There were three men, all over 40, one of them married, one of them with a kid, and they all had jobs downtown San Francisco. I remember one of them worked at McKesson and one of them worked at Visa. And I was like, wow, like, I wonder if I could get a job someday, you know? (laughs) And so when we started our group project and they had a perspective of what to do, I sort of quickly became the secretary of the group. I quickly started taking, and this was my behavior. They didn't ask me to do it. I, I just was, you know, proactively, let me take the notes. Let me get the organization. Cause I didn't think at that time I could really add any thing else of value. And so um, kind of fast forward to the end of the group work, which is the entire semester. So the professor is getting to know these groups as you go along and you're having one-on-ones with the professor, et cetera. And at the end, and we submitted our paper, we got back the next day and there were these little yellow slips on everybody's desk. And on my desk was a little yellow slip with a big red D on top of the yellow paper. And I almost had a heart attack. Like, I just didn't even know how to deal with this. What are you talking about? I I can't even begin to comprehend. And I go to my group members and they got D's too. And we we just screwed this thing up. But the difference between my yellow slip and theirs was at the bottom of mine, it said, see me. So I was like, wow, okay. So I went to see the professor and I remember his name. I don't remember all my professor's names, but his name is Professor Michael Albert. He made a huge difference in my life. And he said to me, Elisa, this isn't your work. I know it. I've seen you in class. And I looked at him. I just didn't even know what to say. And he said, you have 48 hours to turn this around. I said, what? I have 40. You have 48 hours to turn this around. He didn't tell that to any of my other group members. So I went running back, called my group members, got us together. And just by natural kind of what I thought was a crisis, you know, because I didn't want a D. I started leading the group and putting my ideas out there and not losing confidence that maybe they're smarter than me or whatever. But I did have some very clear vision of what I wanted to do with this project. And at that point, they were like, well, might as well go with this kid because, you know, we sort of screwed this up along the way. We successfully turned that around. Um, I'm You know, I remember the details to this day because it was a big lesson for me about my own voice and that my voice matters and that I should and can use it to lead or to participate or to support whatever the situation calls for. And that professor taught me that very, very early on, that it wasn't about gender and it wasn't about age and it it was about you. Are you prepared and are you... um, uh, educated in terms of the topic and are you doing your homework? And, you know, you're not always going to be right. I didn't walk away from that thinking, oh, you know, I'm always going to, but I did walk away thinking I have to express myself in a different way or I'm going to be really frustrated a lot of the time. And I took that into my leadership roles, realizing kind of created an, my own little personal rule that if I didn't speak up when I needed to speak up, then I had to live with the consequences. I couldn't go back and get a do-over from Professor Michael Albert. This was my life. So no no do-overs. And um, it really, it didn't just encourage me. It kind of forced me into uh, expressing myself in a much more proactive way. 
What a gift he gave you. It's incredible the transformation, who you were at the beginning of that project versus who you were at at the end of that project. And the relationships that I developed with my colleagues that were not good before that happened. And I realized that I could have relationships with people who were a lot different than me and they could be equal relationships. You know, we all kept in touch and the, you know, all of that good stuff. So sometimes the lessons you learn is, Obviously, you know, when you fail and when you screw it up, learning what you did wrong, you know, it stuck with me all these years. I mean, again, I'll tell you, that was 1988, so a long time ago. <laughs> you have a podcast, Speaker Mind, and you've got a signature question at the end of that podcast. Tell us about that question that you ask. You know, we developed Speaker Mind with a group of women that I had the pleasure of working with when I was at a company called Namely. And we did it with our common passion around bringing how, what a great next question, because it's about amplifying women's voices. It's about having discussions around the things that are hard to discuss and having a platform in which you can discuss them. And we call that Speaker Mind. And yes, it's a podcast, it's a discussion forum, and we work together on it and publish it about four times a year, sometimes a little bit more. Um, and the thing that I'm really motivated about, whether it's speaker mind or just in general, is we talk about these issues and we have to talk about them. Awareness is obviously very important, but it's frustrating to me to not take action. Like, what are we going to do that's different? So I went to this podcast or I listened to this for an hour. Now what? I want to do something. I want to make something different happen for me or happen for a colleague or happen for an employee or happen for a family member. So our signature kind of, um, it's not just a final question. It's really kind of the purpose of the forum is now what are you going to do differently that you have this information? For example, what action are you going to take tomorrow to help a woman in your life who you know has a talent or skill or desire to do something that's hard for them? What are you going to do to help them to open the door or to give them a new contact that they can act on? So I really believe that micro, what we call micro actions can have a macro impact. It's sort of like the story about Professor Michael Albert, you know, he did that one thing for me and it had this macro impact in my life. And that was just such a little thing for him. And so what could we do? And you ask yourself, what, what's like one little thing I can do today that's going to have a macro impact on somebody's life, career, et cetera. Um, there's a lot that we can do. I love that question because not only does it ultimately help others to become enfranchised, have opportunities they might not otherwise have, it transforms the individual. It gets you outside of yourself. It gets you paying attention to what's going on around you and thinking, well, what do I have that contributes to other people? There are so many different layers to that question that ultimately help the benefactor and the beneficiary simultaneously. Yeah, there's so many examples. I mean... um, I try to hold myself to this now. It's like, okay, well, what did I do today? Like I did a lot of things, but what's the one thing I did that could actually give someone a new opportunity or something that would change their landscape? Um, And it's actually, it's pretty fun and fulfilling because when you try to impact things at the super macro level, like we, it's not that we shouldn't, I mean, obviously we should, 
But we've been trying to get women on boards for years. We've been trying to get more gender equality in the workplace. We've been our pay uh, equality. We've been trying to get more women in technical fields. It's like all of these big, huge programs. But where do you really move the needle? You move the needle between human beings. You move the needle because Elisa asked Justin or Justin did something for Casey or whatever it might be. And then it happens, actually happens in someone's life. Yeah. All right. Let's shift gears a little bit. You're obviously known as a phenomenal marketer. Many may not know that you started your career in sales, though. Oh, yeah. So talk to us about how how did you get into sales in the first place? Well, the story of me going into sales is pretty darn simple. You know, I gave you a little bit of a hint of how I grew up and and what I, um, you know, experienced as a family. But I didn't know what I wanted to be or what my career was. I knew nothing. But the only thing I did know is I wanted to be independent. I didn't want to have to rely on anybody or be dependent on someone to pay my rent or buy me clothes or make sure I had enough money for the grocery store. Like that needed to come from me and me alone. And so I just said, well, where am I going to go to make the most money? Like I have to figure out money equals freedom. Freedom equals choice. And so I needed to make money. And I thought, well, I will go into sales because you make these things called commissions. And, um, you know, it's really easy to evaluate if you're doing a good job. You either make 100% of your goal or more. I would never think you wouldn't meet your goal. And so you got to make 100% of your goal or more. And and that means um, uh, accelerated income. And that means that I can start my path. On, to financial independence, which gives me choices in life. So I went into sales. I went into enterprise sales. Um, and that was 1990. Um, you know, the Valley didn't exist in the way that exists today with all these amazing software companies and enterprise sales organizations and technology like people.ai to help you be effective. No, 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 no. This was selling a technology that you learned from a three ring binder. You went into a training class, you asked some questions, and then you got in your car, no cell phone, you got in your car and you drove around from customer to customer and you, you know, tried to build a relationship for them to understand why your solution was better than the competition. And so I did that. And I got this really, what I thought was cool job at huge company, AT&T, and they were going through a massive change of deregulation. So it, competition was like this new muscle they had to build on how do you sell. And I got put into an, a, um, an account executive group where all the account executives were very, very experienced. And I was an associate. And so my job was to follow everybody around and make sure that they had their presentation ready and that they had the right pricing schedule printed out and that they had the right timing of who they were going to meet. And you know what? I learned a ton, but I got bored. I got bored really fast. And I noticed that all of these account executives only spent time with the customers who had contracts. And yeah, of course, they want the revenue to go up. But there were all these customers who they never called and never visited. And so I was sick and tired of sitting around, you know, the office and then following these account executives around. So I went to my manager, his name was Ed. And I said, Ed, I kind of noticed that we have a bunch of customers we never call or talk to. And like there's three or four customers per AE that we haven't talked to in like two years. Would it be okay if I call them? Would it be okay if you, you know, if I just go see what's going on? You know, and 
Ed kind of snickered. Why don't we give this kid a chance to call these great customers who everyone called dogs? And so I started calling the customers and realizing that, hey, we've never talked to them for so long. Of course, we don't know what's going on. There's all sorts of opportunity or problems. I always see sales as if you can solve a problem, you're going to get a sale. So they had tons of problems. So as far as I was concerned, this was a huge minefield, a huge greenfield for sales because there were tons of problems to solve for these customers. So anyways, um, I started spending some time and I went back to Ed and I said, Ed, can I have my own bag? Can I have my, just get, take the bottom three and everybody's like 10 A's or 12 A's, take the bottom three and everybody's and transfer them to me. And so there was like even louder snickering now because now all the, all the AEs are in staff meetings saying, yeah, sure, I'll send that Elisa all my, my, my bottom three because of course their trajectory on their revenue is going to go up because they're going to take the things that are pulling them down out and they're going to transfer it to me. Well, anyways, it was actually the best learning experience of my life because it gave me this foundation of learning how to solve customer problems. Customer problems are not about the sales pitch. They're about product efficiencies. They're about unfriendly contract TNCs. They're about not the ability to try and buy. They're about the wrong marketing positioning. They're around the wrong operational billing cycles. They're around all of these other things that have nothing to do with sales. So I found myself with all these dog accounts with all these problems. So what did I do? I went back and I started talking to all these other departments in the company, trying to figure out how I was going to sell and fix some of these problems. Some of the problems I fixed, some of the problems I didn't, but I fixed enough of them with the collaboration of these other organizations, product operations, billing, marketing, et cetera, that goal I had to make a bunch of money early in my career was really good because I made all these commissions that nobody ever thought or budgeted for because these were the dog accounts that had a two, three-year trajectory of continuing to lose business with the company. So it was quite the learning process for me. And it taught me solving customer problems in a trusted relationship obviously leads to great value and it leads to more business. And so that's what selling was all about to me. And I really feel like it created such a foundation of business knowledge for me because everything I tried to do in those first few years were about overcoming those obstacles that had been kind of growing and getting hard, you know, hardened over time. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. Your story reminds me of a conversation I recently had with Chris Degnan, who's the head of sales over at Snowflake. He said, you know, when I started off in sales, I knew that if I didn't hit my number, I would be back on my mom's couch. Totally. And that is, that is all yeah. the... And so he said the same thing. I wanted to be financially independent, not because I wanted to drive a Ferrari, right. but because I didn't want to be sleeping on my mom's couch. It's so right and so true. Um, and I completely relate to that. And then, you know, what happens along the way, especially in sales, like I said, is you really learn about how does a business run? Yeah. Well, the other common denominator I've seen across so many phenomenal executives, they have an innate desire to take control of their life. I want financial independence so that I can own my destiny. 
all right, you've given me this job. I want to have control over it. Give me these accounts and I'll get in there and, and I will figure it out. And I think that's such a huge dividing line between people that ultimately are successful, willing to take accountability and those people that kind of make themselves the victims of the circumstances in which they find themselves. You know, a lot of it, to be quite honest, I mean, I haven't thought about this as much, but some of it is driven by fear, Mm -hmm. right? This fear of having to rely on somebody else or be dependent on somebody else. That is like the last thing I would ever want to do. It sounds sometimes shallow to say I want to make money, but you know, it's not shallow if you want to make money because you want that independence and because you want to provide for your family and because you don't want to be beholden to somebody else's agenda. You want to be beholden to your own agenda and what you think is right and align yourself with people who you are aligned with on values, right? I mean, one of the executives at AT AT&T, he changed my life because he saw what I was doing, which he saw at that time as being bold and creative and innovative. Like who is this college hire who just came in and took and like made a a territory for herself. So he was amazing because he adopted me. He said, I like the way you think. And um, he sort of adopted me as a mentor. And because he did that, which again was like, so easy for him to do. He was a fully established executive. He didn't need to spend time with some college hire down on the first floor. Well, he changed everything for me because when things became, when I became interested in something new and I could easily talk to him about it, who was like 17 levels above me, he gave me an opportunity to try something new. I mean, to this day, like every Christmas, Holiday season, I write him a card to thank him. Mike Moody changed the trajectory for me because he gave me opportunities that I wouldn't have seen if it wasn't for that. His caring relationship, his identity or identification that he thought I had some talent he wanted to nurture. All right. So things are going amazingly well as a salesperson. You didn't mention this, but I think you hit quota cap. You, you were doing so well. Oh, I Why didn't in the understand wo- this. I was like, <laughs> wait a minute, like there's a cap? <laughs> Take that off this plane. Most people yeah. never have that problem, Elisa, but <laughs> y- you're you're playing with the upper boundaries of the comp plan. Well, you know which- <laughs> how they shut me up is they gave me a new VCR and your listeners might not even know what a VCR was, but look, I had an apartment in San Francisco. I couldn't even afford a TV. So the fact that I got a brand new VCR was like pretty cool and I shut up and went on to my next assignment the next year. (laughs) I love it. I love it. All right. So why in the world go from the world of sales into marketing? Accident. It wasn't a career strategic choice. I wouldn't say it was a total accident. It just wasn't a strategic career choice. It was more I found myself now. I didn't think I was ever going to get married. I got married. I didn't think I was ever going to want to have children. I had a child. I got pregnant. And I said, I can't travel all over the place. Like I was running a national sales branch now at this point, and I was traveling all over the country and doing sales calls and meeting with other, you know, C-suite decision makers in the enterprise. And I I didn't see how I could possibly do that being pregnant and then having a child. So I decided to go into what I thought was like a quote unquote desk job (laughs) marketing. And I thought I would do that for a couple of years and then go back into sales. But what happened was I started doing this marketing gig 
And I realized that, oh, it wasn't about my territory or my zip code or my bag or even my national branch. It was about the market. It was about the industry. It was about the company's like strategic positioning. So not only could I help with those strategic things that became really interesting to me, but I could provide a foundation for the whole sales organization to be more effective. I always saw marketing as a platform in which to help salespeople meet or beat their quota. Now, today, that's sort of, we talk about that as lead generation, but I don't think that's lead generation. I think that is the whole marketing suite of how you position the company in the industry, how you lead your category, because, because that helps sales strategically get into the right accounts and talk to the right and create the right attraction or demand for the company. And then you get into the, the mechanics of how do you actually then do lead generation and demand creation, et cetera, et cetera. So I got hooked on that. I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. How can I help at that broader level? And then I wound up doing every marketing job in the book at Sun Microsystems and Sun Microsystems was an amazing company. Um, it was the tech darling of Silicon Valley. They introduced incredible software technology, the Java programming language and the Java technology in general. And, you know, I did every marketing job for Sun and learned the ropes of what marketing was all about. All right. So you, uh, you had a great introduction, some great companies like Sun, you're at NetApp. Then you go to Yahoo and you become the CMO of Yahoo. Give us the context about what the world was like when you stepped into that role and, and some of the highlights of that experience. Yeah, I mean, Yahoo was an amazing experience for me. NetApp was too. We won't uh, dive into that, but NetApp was an experience of really understanding how to do strategic positioning and branding. And then when I went to Yahoo, it was this big jump from enterprise to consumer. But it really wasn't, it looked like a bigger jump than it was because what I had become really obsessed with during my time at Sun and at NetApp was what was called at the time e-marketing. We didn't have all of this maturity of all these incredible digital platforms, but we had the beginnings of it. And I was so intrigued with it. And my team was so intrigued with it. And we would experiment all the time. And this is where sales and marketing started to merge for me again. It was like, wait, marketing can start to do things to build relationship trust with the customer that makes sales more productive. And, and we have a direct connect to that customer. The first day I was at NetApp, the first day I went to the sales meeting and I was so excited to be there. And I did my presentation of how marketing was going to help sales. And at the end of the presentation, everybody stood up and clapped. All these experienced enterprise sales leaders, even the head of revenue, the CRO, they stood up and they clapped for my presentation. They said, Alisa, we've never had anyone in marketing that we trusted like we trust you. We're so glad you're here. I was just so excited. Oh, thank you very much. And I start leaving. And the head of operations stands up. His name was Tom. And he gives me a binder. And he says, oh, by the way, here's, here's the binder that you and your team need. I'm, oh, okay. What's in the binder? He said, it's the list of do not call customers for marketing. There were 500 customers in the binder that it didn't matter what I said in my presentation. These guys said no, marketing cannot email them. They cannot call them. They cannot invite them to an event. You do everything through our enterprise sales rep. Well, 
I almost fell over. I was like, what? And it took me a year to earn their trust to not have a do not call, do not email list from sales. So this is not easy stuff, right? I mean, e-marketing came along and it wasn't like culturally everybody accepted it. But I think I went off the script. I think you wanted me to talk about Yahoo. Sorry, Justin. That, that's all right. Marketers <laughs> need to go off the script and improvise a little bit. Me, you reminded me of that story of <laughs> the how do not. Hard. You have nightmares to this day about the do not call binder. Some people yeah. have a list. You got a whole binder. I'll tell you though, the binder was gone by the time <laughs> I left NetApp, and 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 forevermore, NetApp's been an incredible, uh, incredible marketing team. I was out at NetApp. There was a bronze binder on a pedestal as you walk into the marketing <laughs> department. So yeah, exactly, <laughs> your legacy, your legacy remains. Well, the reason you reminded me of it is because those years being in all those marketing jobs, um, it was ex it was really exploring and innovating on how to influence customers directly through the Internet and all the things we know today. And it was all new then. So the jump to Yahoo was actually taking all of that and then putting it at scale. Because there was an enterprise component to being the CMO of Yahoo, which was all around selling advertising or an advertising model. But there was this consumer component, of course, of personalization and understanding of the audience and uh, obviously a 100% digital product with Yahoo. But I think, you know, with all of the stories I could tell you about Yahoo, the thing that stands out for me, and this, I guess, is true of most of my stories because it's about the people, and it's working for Carol Bartz. She was such an amazing leader, a woman who forged a path for women in Silicon Valley. I mean, she did it before anybody else did it who was a female. And I remember many years looking, you know, reading about Carol or, or hearing about Carol and thinking, oh, one day, you know, I hope that I get to meet her. And suddenly she's my boss. And I went through a very competitive process to get that job. And I was so thrilled to get to know Carol. And she was everything that I thought she would be. But it was also the first time I ever worked for a female and had a female boss. And I didn't really think about it at the time that it would be different. But it was different. And it was different in a way that just a different level of connection because a different type of relationship. I, I'm trying to think, I don't want to say it wrong, but I wasn't the only woman on the staff, but I might have been one of two or one of three, depending on the timing of people coming and going. So it was not typical to be a female in the C-suite there. The relationship and what I learned from Carol is one of the best learnings of my career, for sure. But I do remember, this seems like such a silly thing, Justin, and especially during pandemic times. But, you know, when we were meeting on a regular basis, you know, an executive meeting would break or a boardroom meeting would break. And not so much today, but say 10, 10 years ago. You go to the ladies' room. Well, I was always in there alone. <laughs> the men's room was full. I didn't know what those guys talked about in there, but you know, I went to the ladies' room and most of the time I was alone. And I remember one time, Carol, we had a break at exec session and uh, we all went to the bathroom and I'm in the restroom with Carol. I'm like, oh wow, I get like special time with the CEO because I get to go, you know, the ladies' room and we're washing our hands. I get to tell her something or whatever. And um, I got a text from one of the gals in my group who I was late in getting to. And I said, Jennifer, come to the bathroom. So Jennifer, who had worked really, really hard, I was planning to go out on a break and tell her that she was promoted to director. 
you know, the first time in your career you become a director, it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. And so Jen, I had her come into that. I said, Carol, could you just stay in here for an extra minute? I had Jen come into the bathroom and Jen comes into the bathroom. She's standing there. It's like Carol Bartz is standing there and her boss is standing there. I told her that she was promoted to director and I gave her her new title and her new salary. And we had a meeting in the ladies room (laughs) and it was darn fun. When we finished that up, it was kind of like, wow, okay, we get to do that too. And uh, we enjoyed that a lot. I think there's a podcast here, Chance Meetings in the Restroom. (laughs) What's your best story? (laughs) I don't know. Meeting in the ladies room sounds great to me for a title for that one. I love it. I love it. So... Great experience at Yahoo, and, and you've just got a hit parade here. We talked well, about- hard, hard experience. Yahoo was not easy. We didn't talk about the business challenges, but the world was changing. Facebook um, was introduced to the marketplace. Um, Google was doing more than search. Uh, Microsoft was coming online. I mean, yeah, I told a fun story, and it was fun, but it was a hard time, and I learned a ton, and 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 um, and I think the team was the reason that it was kind of all worth it. Then from there, Microsoft, well, actually Skype. Tell us a little bit about Skype. And, and in particular, there's a there's a campaign I know you were responsible for. It's it's close to my heart. Um, would love the love the backstory on that one. You know, at Skype, when I got there, um, I had really learned at Yahoo. Uh, after I, you know, I told you I did every marketing job in the book, but what I learned at Yahoo really changed my paradigm on marketing, which was. Marketing is all about the product experience. Yes, we need to do all of these other things around brand positioning and demand gen, but at the end of the day, it's your product that drives engagement and adoption. And so at Skype, I was really, really into the product. What were we going to do to drive more engagement with the almost billion registrations we had around the globe? You know, what I found at Skype after now all of these years of doing these jobs is that it wasn't about the slick marketing program. It was about authenticity and user love. And we created, I have some of the best memories of the marketing team there thinking about Angie and Eric and Gary and Simon. We built this mission for ourselves and we called it Build User Love, B-U-L. And that was it. That's all we wanted to do every day is get up and build user love. Um, from the from the user's point of view with the product and with the ability like you know we get on zoom every day now it just doesn't seem that cool um not that zoom isn't cool but it just is kind of routine getting on a skype video call with your friend on the other side of the world or your mom who you don't live near anymore or your grandparents or your old colleague like it's magical It was a human connection. It was being together when you weren't together. And so we really honed in on that. And we created, again, at the time, it just wasn't done. We created stories around Skype connections that had no marketing, meaning there was no touch up. There was no editing the script. There was no planning the video. It was raw footage. And we went out to our user base and said, we want to know your stories. And then we just published them. Um, again, today, it seems like, well, that not that just like normal culture? It wasn't normal culture then. And we, um, the team was responsible for putting together the most um, incredible campaign. And at the time, it was very risky for us. We we're like, look, we're just going to put the, with all of its warts, with all of its, um, you know, raw footage, we're going to put it out there. And we did. Um, and 
you know, time went by and each of these stories got more and more visibility. It did its job to drive engagement for Skype. Um, and the team, you know, got rewarded for it. The, the industry recognized the team for building these stories and for, um, you know, creating a, a, an emotional connection through a marketing campaign where you would normally at that time think a marketing cam was a campaign was much more produced. If any of the listeners have the opportunity, I think the favorite film that I have is out on YouTube. The story of Sarah and Paige, who were both born with a birth defect, and they found each other on Skype and they developed literally a best friendship yeah. for their lives as teenage girls. And later in life, the Skype team brought them together in the physical world. And it's a really cool video to watch because it's about them meeting each other for the first time after really being the support system for each other through living their life with their with their um, defect and understanding what that meant for each of them. And they could, of all the people in the world, they could talk to each other like like we would never understand. Right. And um, I, we got I got to meet Sarah and Paige in person one time in New York because the story got some visibility. And one of the talk show hosts at the time was Katie Cork invited Sarah Page to New York to be on her show because she thought the story was so touching and it is so touching. And so me and Angie, one of my um, great friends now and marketing colleague flew to New York and sat in the green room with Sarah Page and it couldn't have been a more rewarding experience. There's just something magical that happens when you catch that moment of spontaneity on film and we all feel yeah. like we're just there in the moment with them. There's no, yeah. there's no artifice around it. No faking. No faking it. Megan Eisenberg yeah. over at Trip Actions ran an amazing campaign. Obviously, in COVID, we weren't traveling as much. And that meant that people weren't connecting like they used to. And what she ended up doing is uh, created this movement, if you will, where you make a paper airplane and, and you get a picture of yourself and then you throw it. And then you cut over to the person who you wanted to deliver it to, and they throw the plane into their frame, and then they make their own airplane. And there was some really moving stories about people that were wanting to connect with each other, and you saw them in their homes, elderly people, young children, uh, yeah. wonderful diversity. But those moments, um, th that's really, I love the fact that as a marketing profession, that's where we've arrived, which is so real. Yeah, I think so, too. I think that's the point, too. And Megan's brilliant, and she's fantastic. Um, and I love Trip Actions, too. Shout out to Ariel and Elon, um, who used to be at Jive with me. They've done a fantastic job there. But I think, you know, where we have arrived is that authenticity and truth wins. And our society has become so overwhelmingly around messages people are trying to get through that the only thing you want to believe is authenticity. And so that's the way to go. And if it means it comes with, you know, some things that aren't perfect, that's fine. That's actually better because we don't believe it if it's perfect. That's Elisa Steele, former CEO of Jive. Coming up, Elisa shares the surprising conversation that ultimately gave her the confidence to dive into the CEO role. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. 
My guest today is Elisa Steele, former CEO of Jive. Elisa established a track record for crushing every job she took. So it's not surprising that eventually, Board started to pitch her on a CEO job. What may be surprising, however, is the way they pitched her. Let's get back to the discussion. You've mentioned Jive a few times. That's where you actually stepped into the CEO suite or the CEO seat. How'd you land at Jive and how'd you land the CEO job? Well, Jive, um, I landed at Jive because I loved that company and product. And at the time I was at Microsoft and everything was great at Microsoft, but I really, really wanted to, at that point, run product. I had done marketing I done sales. Now I did marketing a few times over and I had this passion for product user experience. Now I had done some enterprise gigs. I'd done some consumer gigs and Jive was this amazing intersection of a business enterprise application at scale, but all about a consumer interface at work. And so, I mean, there couldn't have been a better match for me and what I wanted to do. And I had been a former, I had been Jive's first enterprise contract ever when they were a startup before they had gone public. I signed a contract at NetApp and we did the, their first um, kind of complex enterprise rollout. And I had been a customer reference for Jive for years because they were so fabulous. It really changed the game in terms of team communication and collaboration. And so I went to Jive not to be the CEO. I didn't even have that in my sights. I went to Jive. Yes, I was the CMO, but Tony had I had said to Tony, Tony, I don't really want to be the CMO. I want to be your chief product officer. He said, okay, how about if you do both? You get what I, I get what I want. You get what you want. So we put it together and I, and I, I had kind of the dual job for a while. And then based on circumstances of Tony's retirement, some need for the company to do things a little bit differently, the CEO role or the opportunity came to me. And it was a hard decision, actually, because the company needed a lot of change, a lot of transformation. We were a public company and we needed a cloud transformation. We needed a digital mobile uh, transformation. We needed new talent in key areas. And as a public company, you know, what we needed was time. And that's the last thing you get as a public company. You get a 90-day scorecard. And what we needed was time. We had the right plan. We had the right core. We had the right a lot of things, but we needed time. And so it was a scary job to take as your first <laughs> CEO job. But ultimately, the reason I took it is one of my mentors who was on the board, you know, there was a kind of a, a desire to say, hey, the CEO role is such a great opportunity for you. And it's like, well, hmm, I'm not sure. <laughs> There's just a lot of stuff to deal with. And and the reason I took it was at the end of the day, this mentor, I, I said to him, look, I I really want to know what you really think. Jim, tell me what the real situation is. And he took me out to lunch and he said, okay, fine. And he told me all the things that he was, that was wrong with the company. And you know what? It was not a short list, but it didn't scare me. It actually, it totally changed my paradigm because I thought, okay, this is honest. This is true. Some of it I agreed with and already had the opinion. Some of it was new to me, like, oh, wow, that's really interesting and, and helpful to know. But I felt like I had a trusted partner and I felt like he represented the trusted partner of the board and of Tony and that if they 
if I agreed to do this job and we came to an agreement for me to do the job, good for them, good for me, that we were in it together. And that's why I took it. And again, a huge learning experience. Public company CEO needs a lot of transformation and we did it. So over the course of your career, you've obviously worked for great companies. You now sit on the board of great companies. I'd love to hear your formula for the companies that you pick. You know, it's different as an operator than it is as a board director, I would say, because as a board director, I've learned now that I've been doing this for a while, there's really three things I look for. And the first two are sort of table stakes. And and that is one is, you know, does the company have a big opportunity um, in terms of the market? Two, is the company prepared to take on that opportunity? And those are two big evaluations that you do, financial, product, talent, et cetera. And I would say combined, that's 50% of my decision or 49% because 51% of my decision is the CEO. The CEO is everything. The CEO is the person who drives culture. The CEO is the person who puts in place a framework for decision-making. The CEO is the person who has the face to the market on what they represent, what they stand for. The CEO is the person you interface with the most on the board. And your job on the board is to help the CEO be, you know, be supportive and help that person be successful. And so, you know, on the, on the board of a handful of companies, some of them big and some of them small. But the one thing that they have in common, and in different markets, some consumer, some enterprise, the one thing they have in common is I have tremendous respect and admiration for the CEO and I want to do everything that I can as a board director to support them and their agenda and their vision for the company. I mean, People.ii is a great example of that. I mean, I'm an advi- I'm not on the board, but I'm an advisor to People.ii. And the reason I am is because I think Oleg is incredible. He's an incredible talent great leader, strong integrity, vision that is kind of beyond what others have in this market. And the product is proof of that. And so I feel lucky that I get to hang around people.ai a little bit and work with Oleg and and people like you. Well, uh, uh, a great compliment. Thank you so much for that. Uh, another, Another founder CEO I wanted to talk to you about whom you know well is Whitney Wolf. You sit on the board of Bumble. And she is a force of nature unto herself. What have you learned from Whitney and what lessons does she convey that would help a B2B marketer or a B2B sales audience? Yeah, that's a great question. Whitney Wolfhard is one of the most amazing women I've ever met. And, you know, she's, she's young in her career and in her life. Um, but she's incredibly determined, talented, uh, and has very, very, very big vision. And I would say the thing that, that, is so special about Whitney. There's a lot of things, but there's one thing. And I think every leader, every leader who's going to go super far places would have this in common is that her vision never wavers. Her vision of the company, what the brand means will never be put in jeopardy by anybody. It is hers. And everything that happens in that company is aligned to it. She's not involved in everything that happens in the company, but everyone knows what that vision and mission is. And it's not only connected now to Whitney as a person, it's connected to the company, the brand, what it means to work there, what it means to be a part of Bumble. She doesn't just have a platform for women empowerment. It's what she lives for. And that authenticity comes through, that um, urgency of her 
getting her vision in place is incredibly exciting to be around and to support. What is that one thing that she stands for? Women empowerment. Mm-hmm. And, in, 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 and for Bumble specifically, it's for women to make the first move. Now, Bumble's known as a dating app. So you think, oh, that means make the first move in terms of the person that you might want to explore dating. But it's not just that. Bumble also has a friend app called BFF. They also have a business app called Biz. It's about women taking the first move in control of their lives. Hmm. And boy, oh boy, is that something... Uh, you know, many of us can can get behind both women and men. Um, it's about having your voice heard. It's about, you know, going for what you want. It's about having that self-confidence and the support system to get what you want done in life. And so um, it's super inspiring. And like I said, great to be around. Well, Lisa, it's been a great conversation. I'll finish on this last question. You you mentioned you have a signature question. I do as well. Okay. And that is, as you look back across your life, what is that one thing that you feel has made the biggest difference? You know, the biggest difference for me is relationships. You know, we talked a lot about career today. We didn't talk a lot about family or being a mom or other things in your life that are important. And, you know, your, your full happiness and health and well-being is a part of who you are. And in any aspect of my life, I would say when I invest in relationship and I'm giving into a relationship, a trusted relationship, it's always the right thing to do. And it always creates opportunities for both of you in the future. And this is what I teach my kids, too, is that you don't just want to network or just know people. You want to actually know people, care about people, understand who they are and be a great friend, partner, whatever it is. And I think trusted relationships, if I look back and you ask me all these stories today, you know, or all these questions, I wound up answering them about the people. It was about Dan at NetApp or Carol at Yahoo or Tony at Jive or Whitney at Bumble, et cetera, et cetera, because that's what really matters at the end of the day is that human relationship. Well, Elisa, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Justin. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams and boxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.